All right, good morning. It's good to see you. Good, good morning. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. My name is Luke, and I'm the lead teaching pastor. It's good to have you here. Some of you have not met yet, and I'd love to meet after the service. Um, but if you have your Bible or a device with you, turn to the book of John. We're starting a new series today. I'm very excited about it. So the book of John. You know, Job says something very helpful to me um, in the very end of his saga. I think it's in the 42nd chapter. Job says this. He says, I had heard of you, speaking to the Lord, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That, for me, paints a really beautiful picture of what I feel like salvation is. I don't know about you, but there was a time, if you are a Christian in here, was there not a time where you just heard about the things of God? You'd heard of God, and then there was a time where God apprehended you, where you met God and you saw God. I remember that day for me was in 1996. It was in the fall. Um, It was on a Monday night. I was in a living room. And I wasn't even there. I wasn't even looking for God. I was looking for girls, but God did not care. That was not going to swerve him. He was there for me to apprehend me. And I went from being a person that had just heard of God to a person that could see God. And that's the best way I could describe it is just to kind of hijack Job's words here right now. I mean, some of you in here, you are still possibly in a place where you have only heard of the things of God. Some people that you hear from, they have great things to say about Jesus. They love Jesus. Some people are pretty far from Jesus. Their commentary is a little different, right? Hearing all of these opinions, but not really seeing the depth of who God is and appreciating and being apprehended by God himself. Whenever I became a Christian, I had this new hunger that rattled around in me to research and learn and get a better picture painted of this new hero I had in Jesus. And the quickest way I got that done is just to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then I would repeat it and read them again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Always a big fan of the Gospels is kind of completing the picture or doing a better job of filling in the gaps of who Jesus is and and what he has done. And as a, a young believer, That was really helpful. Even to this day, whenever I have a new believer come up and ask me or someone who is working with a new believer, ask me what is the best book to start someone with or start with someone in the the Bible, I always say a gospel. A gospel, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but particularly John, specifically John. They're, They're different books, different authors, different audiences, even different emphases in how they write. Luke being who he was, writing to who he wrote to, he focused a lot and and underlined, I guess, a lot of how much of a man Jesus was. He was with us, incarnated among us. But when you see Mark write about Jesus, it had a lot to do with how much of a servant he was. Matthew focused on how much of a king Jesus was. but, But John, he talks about Jesus being God and very God himself. God. I think it's going to be helpful for us I think in John 20 summarizes what I'd like to do with this next season of our church. In John 20, verses 30 through 31, and it'll be up on the screen. Don't worry about flipping there. I'm just going to read it to you. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but he's about to tell you why the book is written. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
this is why we'd like to take this next season to lead this church through the book of John. Because we know there's so many people that need to believe and have life by believing in the name of Jesus. We want to help you believe. We want to help you have life. And I know there's many of you that already, if you are anything like me, there's a little bit of a pushback of, but Luke, I already believe. I already believe. I already have life. But do you, really? I mean, because if you sin or have any sin in your life, then you don't always believe, correct? Sin is, uh, I guess, an unbelief of sorts. Sin is where we believe that God is not good enough where we can get something somewhere else. Sin is where we say that God is oppressive and we're actually better off without him. That's what sin is. So we don't always believe. And do we always have life? I mean, real life. There's a difference between living and having life. If we always had life, we wouldn't be so insistent on finding life in other places. I think John does a really good job of trying to convert his readers. That's what he says in this passage we just read. He's trying to convert people that you might believe. And I need this. This is good news for me, and I'm thankful because although I have been converted by God's grace, I still need to believe. I still have a lot of unbelief rattling around. I still want to have life. I mean real life. I think this is a good season if you have those around you that are far from Jesus. This would be a good season to rally them around something like this book. John is unique. It gives a little bit of a different picture of who Jesus is. 93% of the book of John is not found in the other Gospels. That's a lot. He only shares 7% with the other Gospels, what are called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what it does is it paints a little bit of a unique picture that maybe the people that you do life with that grew up in Sunday school but are very far from Jesus aren't used to hearing as often. I also find this to be a very accessible work, especially when it's done from a pulpit on Sunday mornings as we go through the book, because it's fluid with on-ramps. Meaning it's not like some of the narrative books that we have taught through. So if you're new to legacy, we always teach through books of the Bible, or that's what we prefer to do. Sometimes we'll put a topical series in here and there, but that's just to give us buffers between the books. Some of the books are kind of difficult. Nehemiah, Ruth, um, we did uh, Jonah. These are books that have an arc to them, a storyline that you kind of have to prologue every Sunday and bring people up to speed. Because there are characters, there's some odd stuff happening, and you kind of kind of have to catch everybody up. But John is fluid with on-ramps. It does build, but it kind of stands on its own every week. You could come in any week, miss three weeks, come in another week, miss six weeks, come in a week, and still just kind of catch up on what is Jesus doing now. It's very accessible for many different places. I think this is also a great time not to just bring people who are far from Jesus This is a good time to bring people who are far from the church. We talked two weeks ago about the new metrics that have come out on the Knox metro area and how 39% of Knoxville is done with the church. They're not classified as nuns, but duns. People who have tried it, even if they just tried it for a week, but people who are burned out on the church. Now, these are people that are outwardly not against Jesus. They would tell you they're not against Jesus, but they are outwardly against this. They would see this as being very Republican, very homophobic, very much against women. 
They might not ever show or darken the door of a place like this because inside they revolted at even the thought of a Sunday morning church gathering. But Jesus, they might tolerate or extend an opportunity to just talk about the person of Jesus. That might be something that is true. You know, with that being said, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I know that the way I've watched, there's been a little bit of an evolution that has started in the brewing world. I'm talking about beer, okay? So calm down, don't panic. But in the brewing world, it's not just about going to a bar anymore. It used to be, up until maybe my young teens or maybe young 20s, if you wanted to have a selection of beer, you'd have to go to a bar. But now we have these micro-brew craft beer third spots, like, like a, a casual pint we have here. We have, we have a bunch just like that. Kind of a third, it's like a Starbucks for beer, basically. Right, this is where the thinkers are going. These are the people that you will find a lot of time are the nuns and the duns. You know what would be better than doing a sermon series on John up here is doing a sermon series on John right there. If that's of interest to any of you, you should seek me out. Doing something like this there bringing it to them, just talking to normal people about Jesus in a setting that they will visit often, people that are never going to come here. It's a great time. This is a great book for people who are not just far from Jesus, but people who are far from the church. I think it's also a great season for those of you in here that are struggling to believe and have life, which is why John says he wrote this, is so that we would believe and that we would have life. So he's trying to convert you, especially if you're a Christian. This word believe is in the Greek present tense, which doesn't mean just a singular one-time occurrence of belief, but something that is pervasive, that follows us day after day as we believe anew over who the person of Jesus is. I find that my problems change shape the bigger that Jesus gets. Maybe you find the same thing. I'm not going to say that my problems go away, the bigger Jesus gets. But the more clearly I see Jesus in the text of the Bible, the more he swells and grows in size and beauty, and it changes the shape of my problems, right? Infertility looks different. Sickness looks different. Insomnia looks different. Depression looks different. Being alone looks different. Being in love looks different. Being rejected looks different. Your problems, they won't go away the bigger Jesus gets, but they will change shape. This is why I say the same thing every single week. You're probably so sick of hearing me say this. Turn to this part of the Bible. It will be the passage that shows us Jesus more clearly. Why do I say that? All the time I say that because I understand that when I see Jesus clearly and he reveals himself by the power of his spirit in the text, I see him bigger, changes and morphs how I see mission, community, gospel, sin, myself, my family, everything. I need to believe so that I could have life just like you. You know, just a quick backstory to this, if I could say it in one sentence. I'm not a big proponent of teaching forever on the backstory of a book, but this was the last gospel written out of the four, most likely in the 90s from Ephesus. And John is interesting. His writing style is different, but then again, he is different. His relationship with Jesus was a little bit different. This is, this is the, his disciple that ran to the tomb with Peter. We just read about last week, right? The tomb is empty. The ladies go and see that the tomb is empty. They come back, tell everyone, Peter and John, they run 
This is the same disciple who was on the Mount of Transfiguration witnessing this incredible thing that had never been seen before. This is the same disciple that leaned and reclined right next to Jesus himself on the Last Supper as they took the last communion together. And interestingly enough, this is the disciple that adopted Jesus' mother. We rarely think about this, but I want you to consider it for a moment. In John 19, it says this. It'll be up on the screen. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. For the rest of her life on this planet, John would be the caretaker and the covering for her. This is interesting. This is his mom. Jesus is not saying, feed my cats while I'm gone, take care of my fish. Mom, this is my mom. Interesting, isn't it? That's who we're about to learn from. John wrote through the filter of having mom right next to him. Resource to nurture. I mean, wouldn't it be cool? I mean, you see parts of Luke, and you can see pieces of Acts where Luke as a historian would interview Mary, right? As she pondered these things in her heart, he would say, and it gives you an idea that kind of Luke was there whenever he wrote that. But here you have her right with you to kind of decode and grow even more intimate with Jesus even after he has already left this earth. It's interesting. So what I'd love to do is just kind of jump in, and I don't want you to panic. We're only doing three verses today. That's not the pace that we're going to take in this book, okay? But their entire seminary course is devoted to the first two or three verses. So I do want to be careful, right? So let's look and see how this word shows us Jesus more clearly. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And if you were to skip down to the 14th verse, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see very quickly, just in three or four verses, in this first opening little prologue and entry, that Jesus has a very unique relationship with time. He has a unique relationship with the Godhead. And he has a very unique relationship with creation. And all of those things matter for you in your daily life. I'm not about to teach you a bunch of theology just for the sake of teaching a bunch of theology, because it's useless theology if it's not applied theology. Theology that's just taught, that's just kept on paper for the sake of having it on paper, but it's not applied to how we do our life. It's just not very good theology, right? So we're going to get to how this is important. But the first point I want to truth rally, or rather I'd like to point out, is that Jesus, as we see here in this passage, is ever-existing God. Jesus Not God is ever-existing God. Jesus is God. Jesus is ever-existing God. He was before the beginning and is not less than God himself. John shows us that there is not one moment in all of reality, in all of history, where Jesus was not. Even before the beginning, even before creation, Jesus was. Some of you, this is probably the first time you've ever heard that. You didn't know that. You thought the manger was the hard start to when Jesus entered the picture. Not true. 
John 17, it says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, Jesus says, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a struggle with people, though, isn't it? But Jesus was in a womb. I mean, he was born out of a virgin in a manger. How could he have existed before that? He did. That was his changing of settings, his incarnation. One of my favorite rap songs says, that's when heaven scraped the pavement. When the Lord stooped to our level. Incarnation is just God changing settings. Jesus was ever present in the midst of the Godhead, the precious Godhead, intimately entwined with the God. But then he changed settings and became intimately entwined with mankind, with us. But he always was. Never a time was he not. And not only has Jesus been fully present in history, he is fully God in personality. This can be complicating, and I'm just going to brush over it. But you're free to ask questions later on if you have them. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God, it says. With God. Right there. That's complicated, right? It's, it's the beginning of what's called Trinitarian theology, which is just a long, fancy uh, title, I guess, for the doctrine and the idea that God existed as three distinct persons, yet with one substance. And no, I don't know how that works, Okay. I don't think anyone really does. But we have littered throughout copious examples of how the Trinity works and how they were not just, how how Jesus was not just God, but he was with God. And that word with is even an, an interesting word. It's not like I was with a dude in the elevator, right? Or I was with this person in line. It's like I was with my wife. I was with my my best friends. That word with means towards or positively inclined towards or walking alongside with, or partnered deeply in. He loved the Godhead, God the Father, God the Spirit, passionately inclined towards them and vice versa. He was fully God in personality. Jesus is not the full Godhead, but the divinity that is in the Godhead, it also belongs to him. Now, I promise that we wouldn't just stay up in the clouds. Why does that matter? Why does... Jesus being ever-existing God matter for you and your neighbor with the coexist sticker on his or her car? How does this apply? It simply means that he was more than a man. He was definitely not less than a man, but he was significantly much more than a man. Changes our theology. And the world has always resisted this, by the way. The world has struggled with this primary point. In John 10... We'll see. It said that the Jews answered Jesus, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. He was teaching this beautiful theology that he was more than a man, and they weren't having it. This is the same resistance we get today. You get the same thing today. I mean, if you were to just transport Jesus here today, it'd be on social media, of course. No one would say it to his face. But what it would sound like is, hey, do whatever you want. Teach your cute little things. I mean, it's entertaining. Sometimes I'll even tune in and shake my head. But it's entertaining. Teach what you want. And if you're feeling it that day, go ahead and heal somebody. Unless it's a Sabbath, then we're going to flip out. But do your thing. But whatever you do, don't make me responsible for you. (laughs) And don't try to convince me that your God don't, don't bring your reality to my reality and slam into my reality and make my reality bow to your reality because if you do that, I'll kill you. Friends, we're hearing that every single day. 
There's nothing new under the sun. But if Jesus is not fully God, but simply non-offensive good guy, then the cross doesn't work. And you, my friends, have a lot of work to do, right? If Jesus is just a spectacular man, then the blood he shed cleanses nothing from your life. Absolutely nothing. But if Jesus is God-sized, then you get the feeling very quickly in the Bible that there's nothing left for us to do, right? except just answer his goodness and his grace towards us by enjoying him. And when you enjoy him deeply, you thereby glorify him. That's the best way to glorify God, not by doing things, but by enjoying him. Enjoying him. If he didn't always exist, that means he was created at one time. And if he was created, then he definitely is not fully God. And if he is not fully God, then he cannot be a valid substitute on the cross. And if he cannot be a valid substitute on the cross, that means you better work really hard to be valid yourself. This is the predicament that the unbeliever finds him or herself in. This is the predicament your neighbor's in, trying to be valid and struggling at doing that, right? Trying to be valid. And that's our response too. We either rest in the fact that Jesus was valid for us, that's called true salvation, or we deny that and we try to make ourselves valid, which is called self-salvation, right? We sweat and we toil and we innovate and we do things really hard, hoping that Jesus sees. And then we start looking at everybody else around us. And then we start comparing ourselves to them. Am I as bad as them? Am I as good as them? We look down upon them. We judge them for what they do. It's very possible that our Jesus is just a bit insufficient because we're still looking for validity. And if that's the case, he's probably no more for you than just a spectacular man. But John tells us he is so much more. He is so much more than just great guy. I don't care if you're a Christian today. Be careful that your Jesus is not more than just a dude trying as hard as he can, right? This was written It was written so that we might believe and have life. Jesus is valid to rescue us because he is fully God. He is fully present. Another truth that I find in here that I think is valuable for us today is Jesus is God communicated. He's not just ever existing God, but Jesus is God communicated. He is God's self-disclosure to us, his word. Have you ever wondered why he used the word word there? I mean, when he says, I am the light, I am the door, those kind of make somewhat sense to me. Even as a young lost guy, I thought, okay, well, I get that. You walk through a door, you see the light and the darkness, you follow it. I get that. But to to say that he is the word is like to say Jesus is green. Jesus is song. It doesn't connect quite like I, I, I want it to. What does it mean that Jesus is word? He was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. That word for word, is excellently rendered to mean message. Message, which that's not a far stretch for us to get. We get that, right? You see, you cannot have an intimate relationship with someone who does not communicate, right, at all. You can't. And and I know some of you are thinking, that's the problem with my marriage right there. He never communicates with me, or she never communicates with me. But I'm not talking about just verbal communication and disclosing your deep inner thoughts. Any communication, verbal or nonverbal, You can't love or connect to somebody that has zero communication skills. I mean, even a pet can show happiness, anger, you know, sadness. Even pets do that. God is so thoughtful to us by revealing himself to us. Isn't that how we fall in love with each other, by the way? 
your significant other, the other person reveals themselves. They have a self-disclosure in a form of intimacy that ties you closer to them, an expression of who they really, really, really are. You see, God has done that for us. And yes, he's done it for us in the Bible. Yes, God has disclosed himself. And if it wasn't for this, we wouldn't even know how to think of him. We wouldn't know what he looks like. We wouldn't know what shape he is. Is he born? Was he not born? Does he hate me? Does he love me? What does he expect? Not ex- we wouldn't know anything if he didn't just disclose it very openly for us. But yet his best disclosure towards us is not this. It's his own son, the word. The word. That's his most intimate disclosure to mankind is his very, very own son, his best communication. Jesus is God's best word to us. Jesus is God's best message. Listen, Jesus is God's finest sermon to us, the finest sermon you will ever hear, his most brilliant self-disclosure. You see, historically, what God says is always connected with action. The word is always connected with action. You never see the God giving a word, sending a word, speaking a word and something not happening. It's, they're never dead words. There's always something created, saved. We see this all throughout the Bible. Isaiah 55, it'll be on the screen. Something that some of you will recognize. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Genesis is the first one that we think of, right? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Psalm 33 is my favorite, though. By the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. You see, after the Old Testament, Malachi is finished, and the Old Testament is is done, there was a 400-year silence, a time where God was not extending his word. It was a time where God was not disclosing himself. He was not revealing himself. He was not communicating his will, his deep thoughts. And then what pierced that silence was a baby's cry. When Jesus incarnated and became God's best word, his best sermon to you and me. We see this in Hebrews 1. It'll be on the screen. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, the author of Hebrews says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world which we're about to talk about. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It makes total sense now. Knowing all of that, it makes total sense to go back to the book of John and see why God would call him the word, why Jesus has that title to himself. It's connected to God's action, his finest sermon to us. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Theologically speaking, to you or to your teenager or your boss who's acting like a teenager, how does this matter for you in your normal, everyday life? I think what it shows us is that God's best sermon to us is that he came to rescue us. He came to rescue us. He came to replace our effort with his own. God's finest sermon is never going to come from my mouth or Matt Chandler's or John Piper's or Tim Keller's, or whatever your big fan is. I mean, we all have people that we listen to if we listen to people, right? 
that's not ever going to be God's finest sermon. God's finest sermon finds itself squarely in the life of Jesus Christ. And I think culturally, many of us, when we come in and sit, especially if we find ourselves far from the church or far from Jesus, we expect God's best sermon to sound a little bit like, stop sinning or I'll spank you, right? Stop sinning or I'm going to blast you and blow you up. But that's not good news. It's just more bad news for you and me, isn't it? More bad news. Because we will not stop sinning. If we could stop sinning, it wouldn't be bad news. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin squarely because we are sinners. And what we need is a message that is a little bit better than just stop it where a spanking is coming. Stop it where a punishment is coming. The good news for you and me is that a punishment already landed. A punishment already found its destination on the person of Jesus. Not because Jesus was acting like Jesus, but because Jesus was there to replace me. That is God's finest sermon to me. God's greatest word to me that I've been rescued, totally despite myself. I've been rescued. Yeah, but Luke, what if I keep failing? Luke, what if I keep failing? Even if that's true, then I keep failing now. The, the, the best part of the good news is there's no end point to God's grace. Now, this is going to stick in some of, the, some of your theologies, and I understand that, and I'll, I'll talk to you afterward if you, if you want to, but there is no end to God's grace. There's no curb or berm to the end of it where we just get to the the end of the line one day and we realize, whoa, gosh, I've had grace all the way up until now, and now God has no more grace for me. If that was the case, then grace wouldn't even be grace. It would be a quantity to it, something to be earned or not lost. But we see the opposite all the way through the Bible. I found this in Lamentations as I was just reading this morning. It's very helpful to me. God says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. This is God's best sermon to you. This is his best message to all of us. Grace has no end in Jesus Christ. The next truth, and the last truth that I find in these first three verses, is that Jesus is also creator God. All things were handcrafted, by Jesus himself, right? We don't really think of this. We think of God creating everything, and usually when we say that, intuitively, we we imagine it being God the Father, but he created all of creation through his Son. It was through Jesus. Jesus is creator God, and all things were handcrafted by Jesus himself. Everything that has been made was made through Jesus. This is both creation and new creation, too, by the way. I mean, imagine that for a moment. I mean, if you could just stop and think about the fact that the wise men that left the the wild east to find Jesus, and yes, it took them about two years to get to him, they were following a star that was hung in the cosmos by none other than Jesus himself. Get that. He's leading these men to himself. I mean, the, the tree that he was hung on came from a tree that 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 he planted, right? The blood that would leak from his body to cleanse you and me, the blood itself was chemically composed by Jesus' brilliance. He is the creator of all of creation. Colossians 1, it says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You get the feeling really quick that Jesus did all of this, and it was all about him doing all of this. This is an important point for us. You see, Jesus did just handcraft creation of his own brilliance and joy. He appreciated it, and it pained him to see it contorting under the pressure and the weight of sin. When sin came to rack all of creation, it affected him. He loves his creation even enough to enter into it, changing settings from being amidst the Godhead to being amidst you and me, to one day die and reverse the curse against his own creation. He loves it. And we see this powerfully in that last verse that we read in verse 14. Jesus came as flesh. The word came and made his dwelling among us. He entered the picture. That word dwell is an interesting word, by the way. It means tent or tabernacle, right? He tented with us. Why would he say something like tent? Because a tent back then, or tabernacle, would be a very symbolic thing for them. The people reading this. A tent or a tabernacle was a symbol of God's presence with God's people in the wilderness as he was walking alongside and leading them to a promised land. All pointing to a a different time when Jesus Christ himself would tent with us, putting on the tent of skin to be with us in an even worse wilderness to lead his people and walk alongside us, leading us to, to a promised place, a better place than where we're at right now. He came. He came. Consider again. Consider the weight and the distance he traveled to tent with you and me, to dwell with you and me. Just consider it for a moment. I like how John Calvin says this. He has a great quote. How great is the distance, he says, between the spiritual glory of the word of God and the stinking filth of our flesh. Yet the Son of God stooped so low that he took on himself that flesh which is subject to so many miseries. Why is this important for us today? How does this matter for those of you today that struggle to believe and struggle to have life? It matters because it evokes worship, true worship, deep worship. I'm not talking about music just when the music is playing musical worship and the lights are down and whether we have hands up in the air or not I'm not even talking I'm talking about do you have a singular devotion where every moment of every day you run everything through the grid of God and how much you love God worship this is the stuff that evokes worship some of you struggle with worship you don't know why you've always felt like there's a disconnect others around you are singing and you're singing but your heart's not singing you're obeying and people around you are obeying but your heart's not really in league with what you're doing and you wonder have you sat and meditated and considered the gap that God closed to do something miraculous and graceful for you and me I mean really thought about it really thought about the fact that it was a real loss there was a real, God had a loss in that, and we had a gain in that. We had a gain. I think when we fail, I guess, to see the gap being closed, Jesus quickly becomes very unwonderful for us and unfascinating for us, unincredible to us. It just becomes God's errand boy. 
that we hope will, if we, if we could kind of unlock the code, we can get Jesus to kind of run some errands for us too while he's still running some errands for God. And if that's the Jesus that you're worshiping, then you're actually not worshiping Jesus at all. It's some weird version of him and probably looks a little bit closer to an idol you have than the Jesus who was ever existing creator God who closed a gap for you. But when you see the deep consideration he holds for you and for me, it melts you and it provokes you to just collapse and say, oh my God, look what you have done. As we like to say here, look, look what I have done and look what you have done. I can't think about this without landing in worship, sometimes faster than other times, but I land there. This is what leads me a lot of times. You see, John wastes no time getting to who Jesus is. It's not taking him six chapters to warm up. Did you notice that? It took him like all of 2.2 seconds. The very first three verses of this whole work, we see very, very, very quickly, fast and hard, that Jesus is very God, expressed from time immemorial to you and I today, crossing a gruesome gap to dwell with us and to lead us to safety as a very good hero. And that, friends, leads us to worship. You know, providentially, John also wrote the book of Revelation, introducing us in one passage to Jesus from a different angle. So I'd love to read that to you. Go ahead and stand with me, and I'll read it to you as we finish. This is the same John, written to the same church, about the same Jesus. He says this in chapter 19, verse 11. It'll be up on the screen. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is, there it is, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our God. This is our hero. Listen, if you are here today and you are far from Jesus, maybe you've heard of him with your ears, but you've not seen him with your eyes, if you know what we mean when we say that. Agreeing with Job. I too, along with John here, am trying to convert you to believe and to have life. Nothing more. And once you have made his acquaintance and he has apprehended you like he did with me back in 1996, the only response that you will ever have for the rest of your life is to bow your life and give him the keys. Because he is good. He is good and his grace has no end to it. His grace, you're going to fall down, he'll have grace for you. You're going to fail again, he'll have more grace for you. It's going to take you a year to get through, he'll have more grace for you. And that grace leads you to repentance. It's that grace that leads you to change, not the threat of that grace running out. Some of you are not far from Jesus, but you are close, yet you're bored and you're religious. And I'd say the same thing, John is here, he's trying to convert you as well. He's trying to convert you as well. Life, 
the life that you're really looking for. I mean, I know the life you're looking for. I'm looking for the same life. The life we're looking for, it comes by believing in the person of Jesus Christ every single day and revisiting the old themes and the old promises of who he is and what he has done, considering what he left, considering what he entered, considering the gap in between, considering the extension of God's grace into your life. Let it lead you into worship. I think all of us, no matter who is in the room, we have an opportunity as we're about to go into worship to repent, to turn away from reducing Jesus. We do that often. We reduce Jesus. We just got done reading in Revelation the real picture of Jesus, did we not? The true word of God, sitting on a horse, not losing. (laughs) Not losing. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being sweet to us. We thank you for showing and disclosing yourself. You could have left us grasping in the dark for who you are. And you did not just give us words, even divine words. You came yourself and brought yourself. Your best sermon to us being Jesus himself. And we thank you, Lord, for being so kind to us. We thank you for entering our mess, for putting on this broken tent of sin with all of its miseries, for living a perfect life, dying a passionate death, and being raised again anew to intercede for us, to develop deep covenant with us. You are so kind. You are so good. And Lord, my only response is to say I love you, to say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for not running out of it. Lord, I know, and I know I speak for others in this room. I know there are days that I wake up, and sometimes I wonder, is this the day that grace runs out? Is this the day that grace runs out? And the answer over and over again is no. And that's why the gospel is good news. Thank you, Father. Thank you. But there's no threat of punishment looming over my head because it has already landed to its full on my new hero, my king. Jesus. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.